investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to the Absolute Return Podcast, episode 67. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is Friday, May 8th. Have a few really important market events that we wanted to touch on on this week's podcast. First, Liberty Global, one of John Malone's entities. They did a deal with Telefonica to combine each of the company's UK units in a massive $39 billion deal, basically the biggest deal after this coronavirus bear market started. We're going to chat about the strategic rationale behind this deal. Next up, struggling retailer Neiman Marcus files for bankruptcy as coronavirus absolutely hammers department stores. Are more insolvencies to come? We're going to chat about which companies we think are going to file for bankruptcy next. Mergers are up in the air as COVID-19 hits asset values. Which deals are getting hit and which could go higher? That's right. Coronavirus is affecting a lot of companies in a negative way, but some some businesses are doing uh, significantly better. We're going to chat about those dynamics. And lastly, we're going to talk about the art of SPAC arbitrage, a discussion on one of the fastest growing asset classes in the market. But first, I wanted to touch on this Liberty Telefonica deal. What happened here was Liberty Global. They agreed to com- combine its British cable operations, which are Virgin Media, with Telefonica's UK telecommunications business, which is O2, in a game-changing $39 billion deal. That's right. That's billion with a B. The two companies will form a 50-50 joint venture, which Liberty Global and Telefonica hope will becoming internet and mobile powerhouses. Demand for superfast broadband grows and 5G rolls out across the UK. Now, this business combination, which is the largest merger since the global health-related shutdown started, it creates what's known as a quad play telecom operator. And it's known as uh, quad play because they offer four things. That's cable TV, internet, landline, and mobile phone services to consumers in one package and consumers really like this Uh, they can offer the combined package at a discount to what you could buy through four separate providers so this is a trend that's really catching on and it's really consumer friendly so that's one of the uh, strategic rationales behind the deal now this deal will really reshape the competitive environment in the uk as the proforma company will have the country's largest mobile network and the second largest broadband internet network so they're going to be quite the competitive in the telecom space. And what's really interesting in the age of coronavirus work from home dynamics, we spoke about this on last week's podcast of deals coming together when you can't actually go and do physical due diligence, you can't visit the assets and you can't do a deal and shake hands in person. And so the background on this deal, uh, these companies began speaking in earnest around December 2019. Face-to-face meetings between executives stopped after about March 11th. And after that, teams throughout the world made hundreds of video calls just to crunch the numbers, hammer out regulatory matters, negotiate the terms, and finally sign this deal. So it's really interesting that deals massive deals, nearly $40 billion are getting done in the age of work from home. Lastly, 
interesting dynamics on the Telefonica side because they've been looking for a deal to sell O2 for a number of years. They tried to sell to a rival that was blocked by the regulators. They also tried to IPO, which failed. So it looks like third try is going to be the charm for this O2 asset. As for this Virgin Media deal, Liberty getting rid of Virgin Media, it's the fourth time this business has changed hands. Um, Basically, it was founded as Cellnet under BT and demerged, relaunched. And what's interesting on uh, the asset value side, so O2 is being sold in this deal valued at uh, 12.7 billion pounds. But it was initially acquired in 2005 by Telefonica for 18 billion pounds. So a 15-year hold for that O2 asset by Telefonica. And uh, they lost one-third of its value. So not the best investment. And it looks like they're just trying to move on and wash their hands clean of this uh, UK-based mobile asset. What are your thoughts on this deal? It's nice to see a $39 billion transaction. And and it continues the trend that we discussed last week of M&A window really opening up. Yeah, it's nice to see a, a large scale deal. And as well, I think one thing that you had mentioned that this hasn't been really a good investment for either of these parties. So in moving forward, instead of you know continuing to compete um, in a space where they're not really winning per se, they're, they're combining and looking to realize some of the synergies uh, that can be kind of squeezed from this and, and squeeze out cash flow. So with regards to synergies, they expect 540 million uh, pounds worth of run rate synergies. Um, this is all through cost cutting. I believe in their press release, they said that it was too early to uh, the t- press release or one of the conference calls uh, that they had mentioned that it was too early to talk about, you know, potential job cuts. I think that's a fairly obvious thing that's going to happen with this. Sensitive subject right now, though. But that's what yes. sy- that's what synergies are, right? Basically. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's just newspeak. You know, in in Orwellian terms, it's newspeak for jobs being cut. But you know, really looking at the deal, listeners of the podcast are well aware of uh, of my admiration for John Malone. Uh, Cable Cowboy. Cowboys is yeah. It's 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 one of my favorite business books uh, of all time. It's very interesting. But really, this this really looks like him trying to you know slowly get out of Europe yeah, uh, yeah. In Liberty salvage Global. the asset he he has been very successful in consolidating the uh, American cable industry as well as areas of the media industry and communications in general uh, has ha- not has had as much success in Europe so this is really one one other aspect of the deal is that it does have a built-in mechanism to potentially float the combined entity in an IPO in three years' time, which that ultimately looks like it would be the exit. And and Malone is really a fan of, these are kind of complex transactions where you're combining a couple of entities uh, that were prior not combined and then uh, you know leveraging up a little bit. And that's just something that Malone has loved to do time and time again, just in the last month uh, with some of his other Liberty entities in the US. Uh, he took Formula One and the Liberty XM Sirius, took those assets and did an asset swap between the parties, um, which was cut quite complex but you know at the end of the day it really looks like just trying to pull back from europe and an investment that really hasn't worked out 
Certainly, UK market has been extremely challenging from a business perspective. And another business that has been extremely challenged going through super tough times are department stores. I mean, that's been the case for many years. Basically, they've been on secular decline for the past five, 10 years. But the coronavirus pandemic has really hammered department stores. And we saw one of the first victims with 113-year-old department store Neiman Marcus was the latest victim uh, to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection this week. Uh, some other retail casualties of this downturn include J. Crew and then Canadian shoe retailer Aldo, and those both filed for bankruptcy in the last few days. Wanted to touch on what happened specifically to Neiman Marcus. Their financial condition had been in really, really bad shape for years, given its overleveraged balance sheet and declining sales. And this was the result of an ill-fated six billion dollar U.S. leveraged buyout by Aries Management and the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board in 2013. So they uh, LBO'd it seven years ago and they put a decent chunk of cash into it. CPP put in about a billion Canadian dollars, which went poof to zero. So every Canadian out there lost some money on this deal, unfortunately. Uh, but it's really been uh, the case of nearly every retail leverage buyout that you look at. We can talk about a list of them. There's Toys R Us, Sports Authority, Payless Shoe Source, Gymboree, all retail leverage buyouts, private equity deals that have gone to zero. And what I wanted to touch on with respect to these retail leverage buyouts over the past, say, decade or so, is they really handed the entire retail market to Amazon on a silver platter. What happens in a leverage buyout, commonly known as a strip and flip? where they look to not invest in the business, they strip it of its cash flows, they lever it up such that most of the free cash flow goings goes to paying interest and paying down debt. And so these private equity firms took all these retailers private with a ton of debt and uh, much of their cash flow was used for debt servicing and whatever excess cash flow they'd try to pull out as quickly as they could from the business and not reinvest in these retailers at all. Certainly not invest in growth initiatives, let alone sustaining capital expenditures. And the lack of investment in growth, i.e. developing omni-channel strategies, developing an internet retailing strategy, absolutely handed the entire market to Amazon, which was actually investing heavily, super heavily into their retailing operations. And now they're so far ahead that Investing any into uh, an omni-channel strategy at this point is is moot for a traditional retailer because Amazon's so far ahead. Um, some of the, these department stores, they basically have zero chance to catch up here. So a big, big, big strategic blunder on the part of the private equity owners. And we gave you a list. There's been dozens and dozens of these uh, formerly great retailers that really did not get the investment they deserved. And now they're going bankrupt. Another example wasn't a leveraged buyout, but it was a public company, JCPenney. They're in big trouble. They're expected to file for bankruptcy next week. Right, Mike? I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah. The, why they're looking to file for bankruptcy next week is it, the media reports, I believe it was today, um, there were some leaked reports that they were actually in negotiation with their creditors for debtor in, debtor in possession uh, financing to cover them uh, through their bankruptcy proceedings. Now, debtor in possession financing is really just meant to finance operations in the short term and ensure that 
the company doesn't have to shutter their operations completely, uh, as well as it's typically senior to all the other credit. So it's really just meant to provide capital to preserve the value for the rest of creditors. And typically, you, you'll see the first lien uh, creditors will will be involved in that anyway, typically. Uh, but this all stems from them missing a $17 million payment uh, on Thursday, which they have five days to cover. So that would bring them uh, to late next week, as well as a 30-day grace period on a $12 million payment uh, that the company missed on April 15th, uh, that that grace period ends on next Friday. So it's all kind of coming to a head uh, next week. So there's likely be an announcement that they're pursuing bankruptcy as, uh, as, as, as you mentioned, Julian, like both Neiman Marcus, uh, I guess to more of an extent, uh, you know, this really doesn't look good for as good for luxury retailers or retailers that really don't have much of an online presence with both Neiman Marcus uh, fitting into that campus. Obviously, JCPenney isn't a luxury retailer, um, but, you know, really has been struggling for a number of years. And, you know, JCPenney, it's a it's a penny stock now. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's literally a penny stock. Uh, soon to be uh, a donut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, some some LBOs really gone awry. And the only thing I would add with LBOs in terms of you know cost discipline is that that is a good thing. Like cost discipline in and of itself, in theory, is good. You know, zero based budgeting and things of that nature sound very good in theory, but where it really becomes detrimental and you just start having the business eat itself uh, to pay out a dividend is when you, as you mentioned, Julian, when you just start not investing in the growth of the firm or even the sustaining capex uh as you've seen with you know in retail you constant there is a certain amount of capex that needs to go into the into the actual retail stores you know to keep them vibrant to keep it being a place that you'd actually want to go shop at and you know that's something that i think some private equity firms get involved and they you know they have a different idea that you know what that that investment into the into the layout isn't needed um but that you know that that's just proven to be false. Yeah, exactly. And another fascinating aspect of this whole retail distress led by this big downturn is that Brookfield Asset Management, they're a huge mall owner, largely through their acquisition of uh, GGP, General Growth Properties, a number of years ago. But Brookfield, they're planning to devote a $5 billion fund uh, to shoring up retailers' hit. This initiative is aimed at taking non-controlling stakes in a number of retailers. So they're really going to their customers and, and bailing them out here. So it'll be interesting to see if that initiative is successful, but ultimately they're trying to uh, make the most of their asset values. Interesting times. There are also interesting times in the world of M&A because this pandemic has pummeled a number of different types of businesses, whether it be uh, airlines, shopping malls, department stores, uh, movie theaters. So a lot of businesses are seeing their fortunes hit, while others are actually seeing uh, business better than ever. Uh, one deal that recently closed with, was uh, acquisition of poker stars. And with a lot of people being at home more often, they're playing more poker from home with casinos closed, right? Um, so a lot more at-home gambling leading to record results at poker stars. I uh, wanted to touch on a couple deals that went uh, a bit haywire here. The first one was Borg Warner's acquisition of Delphi, in which we do have a position. Uh, what happened uh, roughly six weeks ago 
These are auto parts manufacturers and Delphi, like most businesses, uh, drew down their credit facility just to give them extra uh, liquidity and, and cash on hand, uh, given their revenue would be significantly impacted. Borg Warner said that was a breach of covenants of the deal. Basically, what they're trying to get out of it is uh, an opportunistic price reduction, which just announced this week that they did in fact get, which was effectively our thesis on getting into this trade. They only cut the deal by 5%, which was a huge win for ARBs. The stock, Delphi stock, was up double digits this week. So that one looks like it is going to have a great outcome. One that did not have a great outcome was um, Front Yard Residential, uh, whose acquirer, would-be acquirer, Amherst Holdings, actually backed out of the deal on the day it was supposed to close. They basically... Uh, check the boxes on all the conditions and the day it was supposed to close they announced that they terminated the deal unfortunate for investors in front yard residential at those as the stock did tank about 25 to 30 percent on that deal break they didn't really give a reason they just sort of blamed the pandemic in general but i suspect that amherst's financing went away and they were not able to close uh, so that was one in which ARBs needed to take the L on. One potential win, if we wanted to talk about uh, Gain Capital, which is a brokerage company, got to disclose we have a position in this one. Their business is experiencing record financial results as a result of this health crisis. And activists got involved in the stock there, currently undergoing a friendly deal to sell at six bucks a share. And activists is saying, look, your results are off the chart. Your stock would be way higher if this deal didn't exist. I think you should sell for eight bucks a share. So this shareholder vote hasn't happened yet. Trying to get in there. And the stock's trading at a decent premium uh, to the $6 bid. I believe it's north around six fifty or so. So the market's starting to price that in. Another interesting one. One deal to follow. It is a microcap deal, but it has big, big implications. That is Rifco, which is, I believe, a Red Deer-based subprime auto lender publicly traded on the TSX Venture. They had struck a friendly deal pre-corona to sell to a, a private investment group called CanCap Group for roughly $25 million deal. So real under-the-radar illiquid deal. But nonetheless, uh, when it came to closing, uh, CanCap said they're terminating the deal claiming a MAC, a material adverse change or a material adverse effect. Now, this MAC clause has really never been claimed successfully in Canada in the history of uh, MAC clauses. And what material adverse change clause is, so-called MAC clause, is um, something that is uh, material and bad to the target company that allows an acquirer to walk from the deal. And historically, it has been extremely difficult to be successful in a MAC claim in court. However, it has happened once before in the U.S. a number of years ago, the acquisition of uh, Acorn. They were a pharmaceutical company and the acquirer Fresenius actually were, they were able to get out just because the business deteriorated exceptionally, exceptionally uh, over that time frame. Um, so there just was... Add, Julian. With, in terms of a MAC clause, is the, the biggest test as well, as we've discussed before, is that you have to prove that the company, the target company itself, has been impacted more so than just the industry. So it's not just like, a, say, an oil firm, you know, oil goes down, uh, you know, all the, all the companies in that industry are affected. It has to be really specific to that company. Yeah, so this RIFCO uh, CanCap situation, we're following very, very closely. There's been good coverage in the Globe and Mail as well. So I encourage listeners to follow that uh, on their own if they're interested in the world of, of M&A and merger arbitrage. It could 
have big, big implications. So it's something to watch. We're currently following it. Uh, it's unresolved, could go to trial quickly. So we'll watch that one. And the last thing that I wanted to chat about this week is put out a blog post on SPAC arbitrage. Now, most people actually probably don't even know what a SPAC is. What SPAC is, uh, number one, it's an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. They're also known as blank check companies. SPAC is a cash-rich shell company that raises money from investors in an IPO and seeks to acquire a private company target. And they typically only have a fixed time period to do this. So uh, your average SPAC will IPO, raise money from institutions, call it $200 million. Um, we've seen them anywhere from 40 to $800 million raised in the IPO. They don't have operations. They just have cash, which goes into T-bills, and uh, they go on the hunt over the next couple of years for an acquisition candidate. And it was a uh, an asset class that started establishing itself in 2007 really died out after that and recently reemerged basically in 2017 and has uh, skyrocketed since then. 2019 was a record year for SPAC financing. They raised $12 billion last year. 59 SPAC IPOs represented 25% of total IPOs. And in the first quarter of this year, there are 13 SPAC IPOs, which represented nearly a third of all initial public offerings. Currently, there's 98 SPACs outstanding, representing an aggregate market value of nearly $28 billion, just to give you a size of that asset class. And I just wanted to comment on this notion of SPAC arbitrage, because typically you can go into the market and buy these things at a discount to their cash. And the key uh, to this arbitrage is the fact that if they announce a deal, they allow you the option to redeem your shares for the value of the treasuries plus the accrued interest. So back last year when they're earning you know, 2% on their cash, uh, after a IPO at uh, 10 bucks, the NAV could be you know 1040, 1050 after a couple of years. It, and if they do announce a good deal, you have significant upside. One that was announced was uh, recently was uh, Virgin Galactic to Chris Space. That came from a SPAC represented significant upside. So the arbitrage basically is you look to buy these at a discount. If you buy the SPAC units, you actually get common shares and warrants. You can redeem the common shares at net asset value and hold on to the warrants for more upside. Um, and if they don't announce a deal, they liquidate and you get uh, net asset value paid back to you. So you get your $10 back plus the accrued interest. So you get a decent baseline yield. The, the best analogy is that you get equity upside if they announce a great deal and you get the downside of T-bills, which is, you know, extremely low. And that's why we like the SPAC arbitrage trade so much is because the risk reward dynamics are very favorable to the investor here. So I encourage listeners to take a read through the blog post, uh, The Art of SPAC Arbitrage, to get a better sense of how all of this works and the attractiveness of the risk-reward dynamics behind the trade. Mike, do you got any thoughts on it? Yeah, like it, w there also can be some very interesting dynamics around the transaction, is what you can see. Is uh, I would bring up one SPAC right now that is going through an interesting stage, that is Farpoint Acquisition Corp, where they came out with a press release yesterday recommending that shareholders vote against their transaction with Global Blue Corp. Now, let, let that just sink in a little bit, where a management team that has 
earlier recommended a transaction is now saying that shareholders should use their power to vote against the deal that they've previously recommended. Yeah, the deal the, that it, they put together. I've never seen that before. I'm not sure if it's have, unprecedented, but I've uh, I've never seen it. Yeah, like they have all the incentive, like in terms of a SPAC structure, the incentives for the management teams are to do a deal. That's really the only way they get they get paid. So in this situation, Global Blue Corp, so they focus on international luxury travel, which has been well, highly impacted by the pandemic. But, you know, after this initial announcement came out, then Global Blue came out with their own announcement saying that they plan to continue working towards closing the deal where, you know, it's a very interesting situation. You also have a f- the fact of, as you had mentioned, Julian, where a SPAC has to liquidate after a certain point of time. Well, their liquidation date, uh, Farpoint's liquidation date, is coming up and, as June 14th. So they're kind of in a tight window here to either extend or close this deal. Um, so it's a very, very interesting situation to follow. Very, very niche. And many SPACs are backed by big name investors. For example, this one, uh, Farpoint's backed by Third Point and Dan Lope who is uh, a hedge fund manager, has quite the reputation. Um, So there's lots of SPACs, nearly 100 of them, representing nearly $30 billion billion asset class. And we're seeing a ton of uh, SPAC IPOs, uh, even in this environment. Um, And the thing is, there was actually a Chinese cloud company IPO today. They raised over $500 billion. And it was the first IPO uh, post-coronavirus bear market that was not a SPAC and not a biotech stock. So really uh, interesting IPO dynamics happening in the market. SPACs as popular as ever despite the tough market. And I think we will see this trend continue and really this asset class to continue to grow and grow because investors really like it. But that's about it for us this week in the Absolute Return podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, you can always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. You should definitely check us out on Twitter. Mike, uh, what's your handle? is m underscore kessler you can give me a follow that's at julian klamochko k-l-y-m-o-c-h-k-o we wish you all the best in your investing trading speculating and perhaps short selling but until next week uh, we'll chat with you soon cheers thanks for tuning in to the absolute return podcast this episode was brought to you by accelerate financial technologies accelerate because performance matters find out more at accelerateshares.com The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.